0: Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest to share their experiences being a person of color in white spaces. This week, I am chatting with Professor Marcus Burke. Black men are oftentimes betrayed as aggressive, hypersexual, violent, and unintelligent. Kinda the angry Black man. Our conversation today is talking about this. Is it a myth? Is it real? Is it seeked in white fragility? Or maybe even white supremacy? Today's guest to discuss his experiences as he has coped and been treated or described as an angry Black man. Our guest today, Marcus Burke, professor. Burke's debut novel, Teen 7, was published by Double Day Books in 2014. Team Seven received a star review from Kirkus Reviews and was long listed for 2015's Open Book Award and was one of the 10 titles to pick up now in the O magazine or Oprah magazine. And we know when Oprah touches it, it turns to gold. Burke was featured in the New York Times as a part of a cohort of 32 black male writers of our time. Burke is an assistant professor at Texas Tech University and is also on the faculty of the Mountain View Low Res MFA program. He is currently working on his next novel, and we can't wait to read that. All right, fellow daughters, welcome to the podcast. Professor Marcus Burke. Woo! Pause it around. <laughs> pause it around. Hey, Marcus! <laughs>
1: Hello, hello, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, I'm thrilled that you are here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I know it's going to be rich. So let's just start at the beginning, and not in your mother's womb.
1: <laughs> so start from the beginning of my story? Well, my journey to becoming a writer, um, I guess it would, I, I would say that it it started with athletics, really, because... Yeah um athletics were I, I would say athletics was like my olive branch into the classroom i feel like i went to a elementary school and i had a very unfortunate incident on my first day of school ever um oh. a group of us had been like horse playing or something and so we were taken outside of the classroom and the principal approached us
2: hmm. and he
1: lined us up on the wall and he was pacing ah. back and forth and he said So y'all are the bad kids, huh? And he said, y'all didn't take no time to, like, identify yourselves. And he said, I'm going to just tell you that, like, y'all are going to be here for the next five years. And so y'all choose how you want this to go. And in a funny way, you know, like the kind of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy where it was a certain way where, like, once – that was kind of like infused into the situation it's like you know as a child you, you accept that and so it's uh it's a thing where I, I never quite felt seen or welcome in the classroom and mm-hmm. i felt like when i started to play basketball that was a place where i was seen that was a mm-hmm. place where i i was actually able to like be a human being <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> but, where i wasn't projected upon before i could actually present And so that was the thing where once I got to the college level, I found myself in central Pennsylvania Uh and a predominantly white campus. And we were actually sent to the school kind of through a pipeline. So there was a larger college in Pittsburgh that had sent us up there, up to the school. And I was very unhappy there was an incident at the end of my freshman year that mm. actually spurred me to write it. And there was a girl that put an article in the school paper that said that she was sick of kind of like, um, the minority affirmative action situation where she was saying that, you know, all of us were coming out there and acting mm. up and we were making her degree worth less. and she said that essentially she could say these things because she was a white Jewish woman that also happened to be a lesbian and so she was otherized herself so she felt like this was like a cookout conversation (laughs) and I responded. So this was
0: in the student paper?
1: Mm -hmm. It was in the student paper and I read it and I was so disgusted with what she had to say and her justification for what she had to say. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, I was like, well, those are invisible differences. Mm-hmm. So in a certain right, you can choose to be those things if people don't know otherwise. Mm-hmm. I get no choice about being black. <laughs> like right. you know, I don't get a choice right. whether or not I can change the way that you view mm-hmm. me. Regardless of what's on my resume or anything like that. And so right. I, I responded in the paper and it felt like, I, I felt like in that moment that like, you know, like a couple of my friends read it and they were like, that's right, dog. Like, <laughs> and I felt like it was a way that I could, again, be seen because in the classroom, I also dealt with gross misjudgments. And so there was times that I feel like my educators were not really open to me being included in the classroom, where before I could even speak, there was an assumption of like trouble or mischief. And you kind of shut down after that. You know, like, where you just, at a certain point, you're like, whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. really, it was when I started to kind of take that power back is when I started writing, actually, Mm -hmm. just because it gave me a platform in which I could triangulate. And so in a certain right, while I'm writing, you're engaging with an intellect on the page before you know anything.
2: Uh, And so
1: it's in a certain sense, like, it's not like, I I feel like when it comes to the kind of angry black man situation, I feel like in expressing myself, uh I can do so eloquently, on paper, in a way that I'm not allowed to, or in a way that would cause me more complication in a white space.
0: So what, What when you read that, what, what did you feel?
1: Well, I felt like there was this assumption that there was an assumed superiority. Uh, and uh-huh. To me, there was an assumed superiority based supremacy. on. Right. Like, there was a. It was based on nothing
2: uh-huh.
1: but, but like, straight up just judgment on the appearance. Like, uh-huh. you know, where, regardless of how you feel about our presentation, like, we're, you know, I felt like, you know, I'm a very intelligent individual and uh-huh. in no way. <laughs> is me being here detracting from the value of this place. Sure. And, And so I wanted to voice that because in a certain right, sometimes you can start to feel like when you're in white spaces that, like, you know, people just say whatever they want. And it's almost with the idea that like that angry black man thing that if I were him to respond, then I have to do so in a manner that maintains civility at all times. (laughs) And I wanted to do that, but I also wanted to engage because I just felt like, well, there will be nothing gained from having a personal verbal exchange with this person. But if we want to like have a public discourse, then we can do that. And I can enter that conversation. So, what happened well what happened was well it's interesting nothing really happened like they ran it and then the girl didn't say anything and really in a certain right nobody responded everybody just kind of like got quiet everybody was so like
0: radio like, silence. silence
1: yeah radio <laughs> silence like everybody was just kind of like that was there was some heat on that but but nobody really wanted to engage it and it's funny because we had an incident the following year and the incident happened where we had had a racial incident because the presidential election was going on and which one um the, when obama was elected the first time so
0: 2008
1: In 2008, yep. There was a John McCain Victory Center about a quarter mile from the school. (laughs) So this area was not taking the moment well. Mm -hmm. And um, the locals were coming onto campus and they were almost like in like motorcades in a way where like they, they would be three or four trucks, you know, like they would be like in a little group and they would come onto campus and they would high beam you and, like, you know, kind of back you down into a corner. They'd throw rocks. They'd call names. Wow.
0: Wow.
1: And so, interestingly enough, it was our first night back on campus. It was a few days before school started. And um, Mm -hmm. I literally went outside to help my buddy bring his stuff inside. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So when we were doing this, that's when the incident occurred. And so the incident occurs, they threw a a big boulder at us. And... Like one of them leaned out of the truck and throw the boulder and they were calling us niggas and telling us to go back to Africa and all this nonsense. And we went inside the dorm. And so now an RA starts to approach us because she thought that she smelt marijuana. <laughs> so she proceeds to enter our quad because we were living in a quad three or four times. And we keep telling this lady like, I don't know what to tell you like we were really in there smarting like really like we had just come from having this like attack happen <laughs> you know and we were we didn't really have time to like engage with her we were just kind of like leave us alone but within five minutes she had public safety there mm-hmm. and so with so we had just been pretty much like assaulted <laughs> you know Like they were and then we went upstairs and we were harassed and then public safety came and then they harassed us and then they wanted to try to search the place and then it was interesting because it took maybe two or three weeks for somebody that was there to like mention to the school that this happened and they tried to make so they tried to you know the public outcry you know why did you wait so long and why did you wait so long? And in a way, it was funny because I said, like, maybe I'm jaded, but y'all ain't gonna do nothing.
2: Uh, uh Like I
1: said, like, you know, what is the point of me going through the stress of bringing this to you guys when I know you're not going to do anything? Uh And, And they didn't like my disposition in that moment, but in subsequent interactions, they proved to me that my hypothesis was correct (laughs) i see so i i I guess i i stand my ground on that one
0: (laughs) i guess you do (laughs) so you 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 talked about earlier you mentioned kind of almost in passing but i caught it Mm -hmm. that when there is a rupture Mm -hmm. and it is you and a white person that's involved that the need to handle that with the utmost civility is the word that you used. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you say, can you say more about that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think recently I was in Denver, um, doing some research
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and I was working on my novel. I was staying at a hotel and it was a very nice hotel (laughs) and I was checking out and as I was doing so, I come back into the room and the cleaning lady was already in there. Uh-huh. And she'd thrown some of my things away. Uh-huh. And so I said, ma'am, why are you even in here? Like, this isn't even like past checkout time. So uh-huh. you're now throwing my things away. I can't, I, it was like a moment where I had a hard time taking account of like what was even missing. and
2: uh-huh.
1: And so when her manager came up, the first thing she said to me was, uh, now, now I understand something happened, but let's not take this out on
2: her. Oh.
1: And I said to her, ma'am, my belongings were just thrown away. Should I be abundantly happy? (laughs) I said, however, the fact that that just happened I can't control the fact that you approached me with fear. Oh. And she said, and I said, yes. I said, there's no need for fear here. I said, I was wronged. Your job is to fix this, but you're afraid to do so because you want to try and police my reaction. And so basically she was flustered. She went downstairs, gave me a handful of money, and I left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so. So you you walk into the room and there's a woman in the room. Yep. I am assuming that this is not a woman of color. This is not a, a woman of color.
1: No. Okay. And so like.
0: and so you go your spidey sense is yes. on now. And mm-hmm. so now you're trying to take stock of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Now you find yourself in a hotel room.
1: Yes. With, with- this woman. Okay. <laughs>
0: so talk me, talk me, give me a meta-analysis of what was happening in that because now you're in a in a, you're in a very white space
1: oh yes i'm a, i'm a, i'm in a very white space in an affluent white
2: space yeah and so which, which
1: that, is that even more. High, i was gonna say which is highly mm-hmm. pressurized because mm-hmm. of the way that as a black man there's kind of two assumptions that will be projected upon you which is it's a polarity, right? Which is either you're a successful Black man or you're up to some nefarious business. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because sometimes... Two separate ends
2: of the
0: continuum.
1: Right. But at the same time, because they can't tell mm-hmm. which side you reside on, mm-hmm. the impulse is just to proceed with caution.
2: <laughs> which okay. is just
1: like, hello? Mm-hmm. You know, with there's kind of like they walk on eggshells around you. And so in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm in this space with this lady, and it's going to turn into a her word versus my word situation. So immediately, I made sure that I put all of my luggage in front of the door so that it couldn't close.
2: Mm.
1: Because I was like, what's wow. not going to happen? Uh-huh. Is this lady's gonna say that he came in here and scared me, threatened me? The list goes on for uh-huh. what could be projected onto me in terms of what I did wrong, but but in that moment, there was just an entire negation of the fact that I had been wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But what part of what you did in that moment as well is to protect yourself that you started you started moving almost in the space of what Greer and Cobbs calls um, healthy cultural paranoia. Yes. Right. Yes. As a survival technique. Yes. And my guess is that your your um, your presentation did not match. Your outside presentation did not match what you were feeling on the inside.
1: I understood that regardless of what happened, my presentation of my case was going to determine how this is received and processed. (laughs) So if I come down here with fire, even though I'm 100% in the right. 100%. They're not going to process what is being said to them because they're going to police the reaction first which is you need to calm down people are becoming uncomfortable so it's already a thing that once you're wronged you still need to make everybody feel okay about it and that's what i was saying earlier it's like a convention that like perpetuates like this maladjustment to bad behavior <laughs> because in a certain sense I know within myself, like, am I supposed to be docile right now? Somebody just threw my things away. And like, would you, it's a human thing. Would you be mad? Like, Mm -hmm. yes, you would be mad. But in a certain sense, if Biff or Rebecca or whoever of the, uh, majority was wronged, they're writing reviews. They're up in arms. They want people's jobs. They want to know people's employee numbers and, and that's justified outrage. However, there is a certain... Also white privilege. Right, which is a privilege, right? Because in a certain right, I'm not allowed to become upset because of the in like the inherent fear of my lack of control. So it's almost like they have this sleeping lion in the room.
0: So then how do you, Marcus,
1: mm-hmm. in that
0: moment, what did you do um, To not modulate yourself, but to manage. Because my guess is that you had a little black rage going on.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the very least, some anger.
2: Mm hmm.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. right? Yes, it was growing around uh-huh. incompetence. I was not happy. I was not happy. <laughs> right,
0: right. So, what, what, what? So, you protected yourself. hmm. You stood your ground. Mm-hmm. You called out the fear.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And you,
1: what? Well, I call it spreading the love. I call it spreading <laughs> the love. Okay. Because y'all don't just get to make me feel like this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so,
1: to me, I'm just kind of like, well. If I have to feel like this because everybody else wants to feel like if I am in a certain sense restrained or if I am in some sense like contained, then everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. And I fundamentally reject that because Mm -hmm. to me, why is my discomfort everybody else's comfort? And if that's the case, then I've practiced avoidance in those moments where I really was like, in that moment, I was like, what is the fastest route to exiting this situation? Because to me, it's not even always about, I guess it's not even always about like the fight itself. It's about self-preservation. And I was really starting to look at it like, you know, In a minute, I'm doing this. Going to leave because I am a black man, and I understand that if I find myself legitimate or illegitimately in a position where somebody calls the police on me, my life is in danger.
0: That's a wrap. Yeah, and so
1: quickly, and so in that moment, you kind of have to think about like, what is it? What is it worth to you? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. really, in that moment, I was just like, you know. I have been wronged, but I'm a writer as well. And so, I mean, in those moments, I feel like that is my sword, which is just, okay, keep on. Like, I will write all of this down. And, like, I I have the ability to reproduce this, and somebody that maybe has power that doesn't like this might be able to read this and respond with that power. (laughs) Of
0: course. Of course. And so, no yelling.
1: No yelling. Oh no, no yelling. No. Oh no. I mean, I think it's just the presentation of displeasure, which is just that you're not smiling mm-hmm. to accommodate their discomfort. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a dangerous space to be in, though. Really. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the United States of America. I mean just because it does it just it doesn't matter what the truth about you is perception is reality. And if somebody perceives you in a certain way, you have to deal with the reality of their discomfort. And so I think with myself, like to move through hyper-rarefied white environments, I sometimes have just learned that, like, I guess I've gone to a point where I've seen it as a thing of people with real power don't talk. Trash, so to say. Okay, it, it's a thing to me for the powerless. Like, you know, you have you can't do anything, so you're just gonna talk a lot. Like, well,
0: but, but what you have done, you're talking. Yeah, you're talking tap 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 on that computer. You're talking, and mm-hmm. the spreading the love is mm-hmm. my sense is that is that I'm not gonna be the only one that is uncomfortable in this moment Mm that I'm going to share some of this discomfort, particularly given that this is your responsibility. This is your, this is, you have ownership for throwing my things away, however mistakenly or whatever, but there's still ownership. And I'm not going to hold all of this. I'm not going to eat all of this.
1: Right. And, And I guess I just think if you begin to allow that behavior to happen, it starts to erode... At your self-worth, at your uh-huh. dignity at uh-huh. your you know at your self-esteem, because you start to think, well, maybe this behavior is for me or maybe there's something about me that's encouraging uh-huh. this behavior and I think I simply look at it as a violation and I hold it accountable. But you know, now that I'm a professional. I can't do that. I mean, I'm a professor at Texas Tech and I had a situation this year where I had a student in my class and he was racist. And I think he also did not like the fact that he was being taught by a younger black man. He was older than me. Uh And he would challenge my authority in the classroom. He would try and condescend to the class and he was really making himself a problem. And so one day I called him on it and I I pulled him aside and he told me that um, the culture of my class was different. And now this young man came in my office and said that I need to remember that I'm the professor. I had to stop him right there. I said
0: I do and I'm going to and I'm going to tell you why.
1: <laughs> I said I said sir. Don't ever remind me that I'm a professor while you sit in my office. Period. Like I was just like you are in my office right now. My office cuz I'm a professor. <laughs> so like on a basic level we're not going to do that. And then he said you know there's some pedagogy tips that I could give you and I said pedagogy oh. tips. Oh. I said, Hi. "Sir, you're a member of my class because you don't know, and I know you don't know. So we're not going to do that either." And I and I and I, I gracefully got him out of my office. Mm-hmm. Now, when I went to my colleagues, this was uh, this was kind of like uh, this was this was the moment of truth, really. Which is, you know, how are they going to respond to me? because
0: well, so now let's set the stage you're a new professor right. right that this is not your first experience in the academy that you've had multiple experiences oh, yeah. that that even what you described during your college years uh mm-hmm. that that um uh, that the system has not showed up for you appropriately Mm-mm. uh and and so here you are let's see let's see what you're going to do
1: so really I noticed, so I had a colleague and we were in an office pod and she witnessed the exchange from her office.
0: I see. And
1: she text messaged me and she said, um, you don't ever have to put up with that. Tell that young man we have a meeting and he needs to leave. And so we had an issue in one class and by the next class he was removed from my class. Wow. And it was actually... A wowing moment because I had never received that kind of across the board support, like from my colleagues to the director of my department to the chair of my department. I mean, when my chair called me in, he called me into my office and apologized for what happened. And he said, I just want to thank you for handling it so gracefully, because he said, if you had wanted to say F you, you'd have been justified, but that's when you lose. Mm -hmm. And I was like, a thousand percent correct. That is when I lose, because in a certain sense, you can't allow them to push you that far out your box. Because (laughs) in a certain sense, I feel like sometimes that rage in that moment uh-huh. Is, their, is their ability to not access that angry black man.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it, um, it's, been, it's been an interesting experience being black and hyper white spaces, uh-huh. especially because I'm not your brand of comf- I, I wouldn't say that I'm your brand of Negro. That would be like your comfortable Negro.
0: So I want to I want to ask you to respond to a quote from James Baldwin. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. To be a Negro in this country, and to be relatively conscious, is to be in a rage almost all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that the first problem is how to control that rage, so that it won't destroy you.
1: When I feel like for the first time when I was in this predominantly white institution, there was this ever-present rage at how underestimated I was. Mm. Like, there was this ever-present rage because I felt like there were times where people didn't want to see me. And so... In a certain sense, you kind of force their hand. (laughs) Where with the writing thing, I had a lot of classmates. In my first writing workshop at that school, I'll never let this girl forget she said this to me. She said to me, reading your work is thusly painful and it needs a considerable amount of streamlining to be considered fully realized fiction. Fully what? Fully realized fiction. I see. And, um, it's just interesting because, you know, in that moment, I was like, I'm telling nothing but the truth. (laughs) Like, I'm speaking for people that I know. And Uh when you're in those kinds of spaces and people don't want to see you, I think it kind of like revs your engine because I was an athlete. And so I feel like I'm competitive. And Mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, if 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 we're gonna sit here and pretend as if I'm not good, then I'm gonna be great,
2: mm.
1: and I think that kind of agitation propelled me in a way. Now I won't I won't give credit to the agitation because there was a lot of motivation and self drive sure. as well, but. I will say rather than engaging with the agitation, because I think I had to draw a line under it in a certain way, which is what can I actually, what can I actually affect? Being black in a mm-hmm. white space where it just, it comes at you from every direction sometimes. Uh-huh. And I feel like if you don't, you know, there was a lady that worked at that school that I went to and uh-huh. I always think about her. because She worked in the lunch. She worked in the dining hall. She would serve us food every day. And she was, mm-hmm. we would, we, I would always talk with her. She was, she was our buddy. And whenever she would kind of see things, she was a black lady. She would, she would see things like, you know, Mm-mm, you look like you're having problems with that one. She was a West Indian lady. And uh-huh. she would always say to us, keep your eye on the prize.
0: Yes. Yes. She and
1: would. You know, I don't think she realizes how much that really played on me. That's Just awesome. because there were so many times that it's almost like if you if you take the low hanging fruit of responding with your flesh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you'll feel good in that moment. You told that person off, or you hit them, or you did whatever, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: you struck out. You True. know, in a certain sense, your your aggression is being used against you now. Mm. And, And I I guess in that way, I I, I, I don't want to let my intelligence be overpowered by my emotions. Another thing happened that year, though. um, PBS NewsHour came to uh, the Writers' Workshop because the 75th anniversary was coming up. And they were doing a story on the workshop. And so we had seen them around all week. And, you know, know, you'd just be in the library and all of a sudden a camera crew would come in. You'd be like this is
2: awkward but you know
1: and I was also that week a part of a master class so every now and again sometimes like a really famous alumni will come Uh back and Uh they'll call for manuscripts and they'll pick like five and they'll go over them in like a master Uh class and I was a part of the master class and after PBS News Hour called and they were like well they had had a hard time getting to know anybody and so they had been told to talk to me and they were wondering if they could come to where I write. And they were like, where do you write? And I was like, at my house. And they're like, can we come over? And I was like, now? And they're like, yeah, we'll be there in a half hour. And so I was like, oh, okay. And so I cleaned up my place. And then in a half hour, there was boom mics and lighting in my house. And uh, Jeffrey Brown interviewed me right on my couch in my living room. So I had almost forgotten about it. And when that happened, Within that segment, they'd kind of called me, like, a new up-and-coming thing.
0: <laughs> oh! And, uh uh-huh.
1: And, like, then they had also kind of highlighted the fact that at the moment, I had kind of had, like, agents approaching me about signing me where usually the stories you seek out an agent. And so they'd said like, well, agents have already tried to sign him. And he said, he's not going to sign quite yet. And, and at the time I hadn't, but maybe a couple weeks later, I
2: signed with an agent.
0: (laughs) So, so let, let, let me pivot us to a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Rashawn Ryan, um, sociologist. I can't remember where he's out out of, but talks about, Um, One of the ways that uh, Black men use to modulate people's reaction to them and people's fear to them is by signaling. Signaling. Uh, You you know, uh, you wear an alumni shirt when you go running or you're waving and smiling at people just to let them know that, you know, you're safe here. And there you go. That one, you you didn't see that, listeners, but he put his thumbs up and he Uh, smiled.
1: He's a good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. He's a good one. So I guess I'm wondering how much of that resonates for you and have you used signaling as a coping tool to try to modulate some of the angry black man stuff with white people in white spaces?
1: Um yes. Um I mean I would say it's funny. I remember I was living in Iowa City and mm-hmm. I was driving up the street and I was with a black guy and I just waved to some of my neighbors and like he was like, Dog, what you doing? Like, you leave them white people alone. And and I was like And I was like, actually I'm waving so they leave me alone.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Like I'm waving because I don't need their attention actually. Like they uh-huh. just need to like wave and be like, Oh, he's a nice guy and just let that thought go. Like I don't uh-huh. need them, like, you know, too uh-huh. curious about me because that causes trouble like and and so in a certain sense yeah like i can see it where i mean i think in a certain sense i am aware of it but you know for instance like i mean i'm a black man i have dreadlocks
2: uh-huh.
1: so in a professional space there's already a certain amount of judgment that's going to come with that uh-huh. and i'm not going to Cut my hair because of that.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> However,
1: I know that when I go inside of those spaces, I do not speak using colloquialisms. Uh-huh. I do not speak using slang uh-huh. um, because you're giving you're giving into like what that image that predetermined image is already, and so. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, I'll wear, I mean, you've seen, I mean, I I see it even in my colleagues, you know,
2: sure.
1: sometimes the brand of clothing, Mm. like, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Too much.
0: Uh, (laughs) Right, I do. Well, if it's too flavorful.
1: Exactly. Like, Mm -hmm. um, or just even, or just even... Brands that are brands that cater more to Ah. white people.
0: So J. Crew versus
1: Sean John? Yeah, J. Crew versus Sean John or Patagonia or Merrill versus, I don't know. (laughs) echo you know i'm just trying to say
2: like urban
1: brand where right
2: right there's just
1: times that you know generally those brands are not making clothing that are that is embraced by the urban community and so sometimes i feel like having that kind of stuff on you know you kind of uh, you're not aggressive
0: (laughs) crisscross wear right um, yeah, and I, I, I will tell you that I am very, um, I mean, I, we've worked together before, just for full disclosure, that I'm very attentive to how I look uh, outside of this house. And I mean, and not just because I love pretty things, because I do, uh, but that there is a certain, um, I want to be in charge of the, the discourse about me. And I don't want that. To to what I wear to be a distraction, although that it has been um, that I've been in situations. But
1: I can say probably the biggest example of that for myself is when I travel. When I travel through the airports, I usually have a suit on. You and still
0: you still wearing a suit, huh? Like the ancestors. It, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> like well, I tell you, like sometimes literally having a suit on. It's just easy. Like, literally, like, you look like you got somewhere to be and Uh nobody asks you no doggone questions. Like, you know, uh, uh. in in an interesting way, like, I'll say this, dressing comfortably and dressing professionally, inevitably, I will be stopped, I will be questioned looking comfortable. When I'm in my professional, where usually I'm left alone.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Now it could be a false association, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, it's yours, right? <laughs> Understood.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's that's signaling that that wearing that suit is signaling. Mm-hmm. Um. So, um, Doctor Robin Angelo. Familiar with Robin? Uh, has advanced um, um, a schema called White Fragility. Uh, Discomfort and defensiveness on the part of a white person when confronted by information about racial inequality and injustice. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Great book she's written um, and wonderful TED Talk, and not TED Talk, YouTube, if you are ever interested in taking a peek at it. But she goes in.
1: I would pick Um,
0: that up. She's like the female uh, Tim Wise.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, uh uh-huh. And so (laughs) I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I've often wondered if the whole angry Black man thing, and angry Black woman for that matter, is a caricature that is meant to feed white fragility, whether intentional or not, I don't know. But... um,
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say so because I think it's an easy scapegoat. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Like, I think it's easy that the second that any kind of emotion is involved, you police the reaction. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the biggest thing missing from that whole angry Black man thing is why? Why is that man mad? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, why is that man mad? Because I feel like nobody is asking, is he justified? Nobody, you know, nobody's saying like, is he justified for being angry? Is, you know, is all of, you know, is he on point? Like, shouldn't he be angry? Wouldn't you be angry? You know, I think it's a thing that, again, I think it's to encourage maladjustment. So it's to say like, I can disrespect you and you're not going to hold me accountable because that means you're too sensitive. Why you? Why can't you take a joke? <laughs> right? And, you know, if you decide that you're going to, like, put your foot down, now you're the angry one. And, now, you know, it just everybody freezes up in the way they deal with you. There's an issue going on. Everybody's nervous now. And I think that it is a way that it, it feeds into white fragility because I think the the biggest issue with white fragility is just that they don't want to be uncomfortable. And so the second that there's discomfort involved, it turns into this silence, and everybody knows silence is completion. And sure, so, sure. Uh-huh. I think, like, you know, if you can silence me, then you don't have to hear it. Right, right. And I think sometimes, like, you get beat down. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you ch- you kind of get beat down from going through all of these things all the time, and you have to choose, like, what to engage with and what not to engage all with, right. because the angry black man, the angry black woman. I think that those caricatures exist to control black people within hyper white spaces. Uh,
2: because uh.
1: if you can already kind of like touch a sensitive spot and saying you're getting mad, like you don't be an angry, you know, don't be the angry black guy. That's gaslighting, really. Because really, what it's saying is. Even though you're being disrespected, accept this from that person so that we don't have to actually have an uncomfortable moment. But I'm already uncomfortable.
0: Right. I'm uncomfortable
1: uh, already. Right. And, and so don't don't share the love. Well, you know, <laughs> if you share the love, you know, I just think it's a matter of, like, you know, you got to find your folk. <laughs> yeah. Just because, I mean, institutions, man, <laughs> So, so what,
0: what, what has been one of the most difficult situations um, with people treating you, accusing you, or you actually being angry um, that you've had to
1: deal with? Okay, I was on book tour, and I was staying, and I, say I was staying at the Elliott Hotel in Boston, and mm-hmm. one of the nicer hotels in Boston, and. Mm-hmm. I left one night to go to the little 7-Eleven around the corner to get a snack or something. And this receptionist saw me leave. Like I said, goodnight to her. When I got back, the door is locked. She's right there. I'm pulling the door. and She's not looking. So now I ring the bell. Now, she asks me what my room number is because it's a matter of public safety. after I'd been outside for 10 minutes. Mm. And that was another one of those moments where you're like, if I now go and complain, I'm like the crazy guy sure. like angry. Sure. But, you know, I feel like sometimes there's, I don't know.
0: So people oftentimes, not people, therapist my type, oftentimes talk about anger being a blanket emotion mm-hmm. and meaning that it's, it's, it, you, can, you can get angry quick, boom. But mm-hmm. oftentimes if you lift up the blanket of anger, that mm-hmm. may be disappointment or betrayal or frustration mm-hmm. or hurt or defensiveness or mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things, a, a myriad of other things. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm wondering, Marcus, as you think about the angry black man mm-hmm. or being angry at times as a black man, because I, mm-hmm. I think we've established that the angry black man is a caricature, right? Okay. Right. But you being angry and you're still black and male. How about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Oh. When well, we lift up the blanket of the anger, mm-hmm. What do you think is underneath it
1: most? Confusion. Mm. And I say confusion just because there's kind of almost like an inverse dissonance, which is you understanding yourself, but not understanding why this individual (laughs) is projecting whatever it is upon you and kind of, you know, aggressing mm-hmm. in that, you know, along those lines. And I think oftentimes it's, it's it's confusion. I think oftentimes it's almost sometimes like a certain kind of bafflement. Like, I think unless you actually dealt with that kind of racism, I think that kind of hatred isn't mm. really. And I think sometimes when you really realize... Like true racists, like how much they really hate you. I mean, I think that like sometimes that's like you can almost be like a bit as much as racism exists, I think sometimes it can still be surprising. Um I think that there's a lot of pain under it. I think there's a lot of pain under it. I think there's a lot of, under a lot of hurt under it where you know there's a lot of guys that Used to be charismatic that aren't really so charismatic uh-huh. anymore, and I think it's just a matter of you get beat down, uh-huh. man.
2: Uh-huh. Like,
1: uh, I think that there's no way to not feel under attack uh-huh. sometimes, uh-huh. and so when you feel like you're under attack, you're quick to go on defensive, uh-huh. Uh-huh. like you become conditioned to like always have to defend yourself. And and I think like that, that can become like a heavy, a certain kind of heaviness mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. just because you kind of always are ready to have your sure, sure, and, sure. And I think that it can, it can change the way that you relate mm-hmm. to people. Okay. And, and so, I mean, I think what's underneath it is really just a lot of hurt, a lot of mm-hmm. anger, a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm.
2: I appreciate that yeah, a
1: lot of yeah.
0: So I'm aware that you have resources to help you to manage um, your reaction to other people's projection of anger towards you and your own actual anger. And so the pen you have or um, you have the ability to you have power in other ways in your life. Uh, social resources that you are staying at the high end hotel and not at the motel six, and uh, that just, that you are middle class. So I guess I'm wondering how you think that class does or does not mitigate people's negotiation of the angry black man.
1: Honestly, I don't really think class can. I, I do not believe that class can. Shield you from that. I just think that in more rarefied environments, you have to be self-protectionary because you have nobody to refer to. So you really need to make sure this is like worth your time or that this is actually something that you're down to go to bat for. Because I think in a certain right, if you're going to go for it, you can't really care if they call you angry. Mm. Like, I think in a certain sense like yeah you're damn right i'm angry but like you know uh, any human being would be right (gasps) right
2: right right
1: and and i think if you just invoke the humanity of it because i think that that whole angry black man takes the humanity away like i said like why is he angry who angered right (laughs) right and you know because the angry black man assumes that in and of itself i woke up pissed off today. Mm. And like
0: it's not connected to anything,
1: right? Like you just like I'm just ready. Like I'm just mad because it's hot outside. No, that's not the case at all. And and I think the it's very difficult to convince people otherwise Mm -hmm. because of the things that live in their heads. And so sometimes you're almost. You're almost navigating. Like I think you're just navigating people's sure. projections more sure. than anything, rather than anything that's even present.
0: So, let's talk about Barack Obama, my So, so one of the things I was struck by in this was when I thought about the times that Obama was outwardly angry, and I can really only remember one. Trayvon. Nope. He wasn't. He just said Trayvon could have been my son.
1: Right, he was just sad.
0: Right, Sandy Hook.
1: Oh. He was living. Yeah, he didn't like, yeah. Wasn't he crying? Yeah, he was upset. He man. was pissed.
0: He but it almost is like the only time that he could have been that angry was in the wake of white babies being killed.
1: Right. Yeah. But it, it, it was forgiven in that moment. That Right. Well, and everybody else
0: was angry, too. So there was not any question about the why, the why, the why of the anger. But it was, we're all angry. There's a there's a anger consciousness. There's a shared versus Trayvon. Or when Henry Louis Gates got arrested by campus police, um, right? And then he had to do the beer summit. I mean, it's just a great example of blackmail anger. Well,
1: I think it's crazy because with black male anger, it's it's almost like, to me, everybody knows that nothing changes until there's white rage, right? But uh-huh. with black anger or black rage, all there is is judgment. Like, mm-hmm. I think sometimes like I think about that, like where I'm like, you know, it's interesting when we're raging righteously on our own accord for our own things, we're looked at as aggressive, lynch mobs, gangs, you know, all of those things. However, on the other side, once there is rage, there's change. I just think it's a thing to think on.
0: Marcus, one of my questions I have for you is what would Professor Marcus Burke? Tell 20-year-old Marcus
1: Burt. Um, that's a great question. I, I think the biggest thing that I would have told myself was to just keep my head and to keep going. Because mm-hmm. there were times that I would be so confused or perturbed by the nature of an attack that I wouldn't even necessarily realize that the people that were attacking me were on their way out of this whole situation. You, uh. know, you know, so it's almost like in a certain sense, like, this person that you thought was so powerful and all of that, like, this person had one, two years left in the game at large. Uh. You know, and, and they knew that. You didn't know that. <laughs> you know, like, look, in a certain sense, I would I guess I would say to take more of what comes at you with a grain of salt. Like, I think... Yeah, really, I would say, like, to engage less. Mm -hmm. um, And to seek out places that... I would say seek out places that want you.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Because... I think that there can be this impulse to like prove worthiness. (laughs) And I think that that's a futile effort. Like if you have to prove your worthiness or tell people to be nice to you, it's already disingenuous. And so I think in that way, I could have saved a lot of time trying to navigate certain like situations with people when I ultimately could just walk away and move on. You know, like I think, Sometimes it's not entertaining so much of it.
0: Gotcha. I gotcha.
1: I think right now, the reason that we're not seeing a lot of success with our social movements is because the the price of true change is too large right now. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I would call for fundamental change, honestly. I would call for fundamental change. I would call for listening. What's your personal motto? My personal motto? um, I guess I kind of have two. Um, One hand washes the other. And I say that because I've had a lot of people that have really helped me along my journey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are times that I can't necessarily repay those people but uh-huh. there's times that you know I'll have a student that's like, "Why
2: are you so nice to me?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> like,
1: because there was teachers that were nice to me when, right. when, when, when right. I when I just right. needed somebody to just be nice to me. <laughs> you know? um, and I think mm-hmm. the other would just be when hope dies, you die. Like mm. if, if if you don't, I just think if you don't even have hope, there's nothing left. And you know, if you just living to fight, but there is no grander goal. Like, you're just here to fight. And what's the point? You know, sure. like, what what are you hoping for? And I think that sometimes in the darkness of a lot of struggles, hope is what keeps me going, which is just that this can change, this will change. Um, just not being married to any moments, because sometimes... Along the journey, you know, birth pains and death pains feel the same.
0: <coughs> Thank you to our guest daughter, Marcus Burke for joining this week's episode of Being the Dot. This episode was edited by Heather Lang. Special thanks to podcast interns Amanda Gillette and Carol Lambo. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davisdeliciousdelights.com davisdeliciousdelights.com custom-made personalized pastries, cakes, pies, and cookies made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davisdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $35.99 or more. Join us next week when I sit down with Stacy Brooks Alfonso to discuss how to use your seat at the table and your voice Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast.
2: Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.